Today on the show, survivalism as a financial planning strategy. We talk to the man who literally wrote the book on how to survive the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Thursday, November 13, 2014. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you an interview with James Wesley Rawls, author of the book, How to Survive the End of the World as We Know It, Tactics, Techniques, and Technologies for Uncertain Times. We're going to talk about financial planning through a survivalist lens. I've looked forward to bringing this interview, and I was thrilled when I reached out to uh, to James Rawls. Uh, I was thrilled that he accepted my invitation. I really have a lot of admiration and respect for him. I've thoroughly enjoyed over the years reading his novels. He's published at least uh, – how many novels has he published? At least four, I think maybe five novels. He's written a couple of books, one of which is literally a textbook entitled uh, How to Survive the End of the World as We Know It, Tactics, Techniques, and Technologies for Uncertain Times. And uh, Jim Rawls is a master – uh, survivalist, I guess. He's one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever come across within that field of study. And he's committed in every way. He, he is the editor of the most popular survival blog on the internet entitled survivalblog.com. And today, uh, I bring you an interview with him where we talk about survivalism as a financial planning tactic. And I think you'll find it really, really interesting. This is, this is the type of thing that I love doing on the show. And this is the type of conversation uh, – this is what I'm about – is this is the type of conversation that is difficult to find in mainstream personal finance press. Oftentimes, subjects like this, uh, like you know, survivalism, uh, disaster preparedness, things like that, are often, uh, I don't know, just not a lot of people talk about them, not a lot of people bring them up. But I find in most conversations, you have very careful, thinking, rational people that have concerns. And so what, one of the things, so today, to give you an idea, today I bring you this interview with Jim Rawls, uh, uh, and that's going to be the last interview for this week. Tomorrow, I'll be doing Q&A. So if you would like me to answer your show on my, your question on my uh, Friday Q&A show, then call that in. But next week, I'm going to be releasing an interview on Tuesday with Tammy Strobel, who is the founder of uh, – author at Rowdy Kittens, and she is all about minimalism. And so what can we learn from the survivalist community, which is very much about having the things that you need in physical assets? And then what can we learn from a minimalist, a, a hardcore minimalist who lives in a tiny house? And then on Thursday next week, I'm releasing an interview with David Downey, who wrote a book called Radical Immediate Retirement. He goes to a very different perspective. Then the following week, we'll be talking with a couponer. I've got an interview already recorded with a man named Christopher Delaney, who is – he and his two children – he has a, his wife and two young children. He and his wife live car, completely car-free and, and, and have in a couple of modern American cities. So I personally love this variety of topic. I hope that you do as well, and I'm really excited to bring you the interview here with Jim Rawls. He's one of the most knowledgeable people in this area that I know of, and this is my goal is to continue to bring you uh, knowledgeable professional experts who really know their craft and also people who are very relatable, who are just pulling out different aspects of, of finance so that you can be challenged to know what you believe and why you believe it. That's my vision for the show. Real quick before I play the interview for you, 
A uh, quick technical note. Uh, if you are on iTunes, um, some of you know, and I'm going to be saying this for at least a few weeks, if you were previously subscribed to the show on iTunes prior to this last Friday, so prior to November the 9th, uh, excuse me, November the 7th, uh, on November the 7th, I wound up completely destroying and terminating all of my iTunes subscribers because I redirected the feed wrong. So that affects about somewhere between about 15 to 1,800 of you by my best guess. So if you were subscribed in an iTunes or uh, you know an iOS device, anything that uses iTunes, then that is your feed is now messed up. This also affects many of you who are using other types of feed uh, catchers that use iTunes as their backbone. I don't know all the names of them, but I've received a few different emails from listeners who've had the problem. I am sincerely sorry that I did that. Uh, obviously, that's not, <laughs> it's, that's not what any podcast host wants to do is to stop the audience from being able to find their show. So I'm sincerely sorry that that, that happened. But uh, if you want to improve it, uh, all you need to do is unsubscribe in the application, whether that's your desktop application or whatever you're using or on a phone, unsubscribe, go and search whatever the store is, the directory that you're using and resubscribe. For some of you who have uh, you know third-party apps where you can put in the RSS feed directly, I have listed that RSS feed on the front page of the website so you can use that, and I apologize. So make sure that you tell your friends if they like listening that you'll need to resubscribe. I didn't go away. I am still here. I am still recording shows, uh, and I, I'm going to keep on doing it. So I'm sorry for the technical hassle. I appreciate your bearing with me. I just I made a mistake and uh, <laughs> doomed myself, but that's okay. I figure uh, maybe that'll weed out some people who didn't really like the show. But those of you who like the show, I think you'll find your way back. So I thank you for being here. That's it. Let's get to the interview. So Jim, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you making time for me. Thank you for having me on, Joshua. I've been looking forward to this because I have been wanting to bring a somebody from the survival community on the show, and I don't think I'm I'm <laughs> knowledgeable enough or expert enough to properly represent uh, the survival community. So I figured, well, I'll go find the uh, I'll go find the granddaddy of all survivalists, and I decided that was you, and reached out to you, and I was thrilled when you accepted my invitation. <laughs> uh, what I'd love to start with is, would you be willing to little, share a little bit about uh, your personal background as a young man growing up and how your views and ideas have evolved over time to the point where now you are in many ways a leader of the survivalist community? Okay. Well, um, I am uh, a pretty ardent survivalist. I grew up in the bomb shelter era of the 1960s. And I also came from a pioneer family that came out west via covered wagon in the 1850s. And a lot of that mentality really never wore off in my family. We've always been very self-reliant, always uh, been into gardening and cutting firewood and uh, all that sort of thing. And part of my whole psyche, my whole mindset, came from my grandfather, who always told me, Set aside at least 10% of everything you earn, and you'll never go to the poorhouse. Mm -hmm. And my parents grew up in the 1930s in the, in the Great Depression. So between my grandparents and my parents, I definitely had a, an outlook on life that was geared toward family preparedness. And that's what I've tried to pass along in my blog and in my books to encourage people to get prepared for regardless of whatever happens, uh, whether uh, good times or bad, 
a lot of the advice that I give people has meaning. Mm-hmm. Because even in uh, times of prosperity, the uh, things like dollar cost averaging and buying in bulk are just plain common sense. Even if there is never a disaster, if you're buying rice in 50-pound sacks uh, rather than buying it in one-pound bags, you're, you're essentially eating cheap. And by buying in bulk, you're saving a tremendous amount of money and often you're eating more healthy things because you're not buying prepared packaged foods. You're buying bulk grains and uh, more more nutritious foods mm-hmm. or wholesome foods. So there's multiple advantages. Have you always – one of the things that I have wondered, and I've read uh, – I think I've read all of the books that you've written. And by the way, thank you for writing uh, – Patriots, uh, which I think was the first book that you wrote. I think that was your first novel. Yes. I wish I'd read it uh, long before I did because when I was a boy growing up, I always loved reading novels, but I couldn't stand how little detail authors would put into their novels. So when I was actually in eighth grade, I actually wrote uh, an adventure novel for myself. And I put a, a remarkable amount of detail into it, the, the type of detail that I wanted to have. I remember I put four pages on the, the pickup truck that my hero and, and his brother drove and <laughs> described you know, the type of axles and the type of transfer case and the size of the tires and all of these things. And I did about a page and a half on their – I was a ham when I was – I got my ham license when I was, before I was a teenager, I think. And I put a page and a half on their radios in it. But I, and, but it was a, I, wrote, I finished the book, but it was a total bust, and I never found a single author that appealed to my that would actually put enough detail in until I read your book Patriots and I said here's my kind of author so thank you (laughs) (laughs) well thank you Joshua yeah my my novels have often been referred to as survival manuals dressed as fiction right I try to squeeze a lot of practical tactical tips into a adventure storyline and I kind of have to strike a balance though I don't want to drag the story down with too much detail but people often tell me that they end up reading my books twice, the first time through for fun and the second time through with a notepad and a yellow highlighter in their hand taking right. notes. Right. And I've noticed you've changed over time. I actually prefer the writing style of Patriots, which is far more dense than, than your most recent. I just finished your newest novel, Liberators. And it's much more – I think, I think Liberators and, and your newer novels are much more appealing to the mainstream as far as their literary uh, skill. But I actually prefer the denser, thicker uh, <laughs> <laughs> style of Patriots. So um, – but my, so my question was going to be, you've been paying attention to this world for a long time, and one of the things I have often wondered is, how do you strike a balance between optimism and pessimism? Because it seems as though one of the like, consistent themes in, in reading your blog and consistent themes uh, of, of when you're in the kind of the doomsday space, so to speak, is how do you, do you, are you, are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? Do you have any hope for the future being better than the past? How do you handle that personally? Well, ultimately, I'm an optimist uh, for two reasons. One is I'm a Christian, and I know where I'm headed after I die. And secondarily, I'm an optimist because I think that there's a lot of hope for America, even though we've had um, some political and economic setbacks. In the long term, I think our constitutional government will be restored. I think our currency will be restored to a sound precious metals-backed currency, and 
in in the long run, even though there might be a lot of chaos in the in the interim, I think that our government will be scaled back to the the size that our founding fathers intended. So in the long run, I'm quite optimistic. In the short run, of course, I'm pessimistic, in part because of the massive debt and deficit that's been built up by our government, the uh, huge amount of uh, monetization of the debt that's going on with quantitative easing, and just general fiscal irresponsibility on the part of our government. So even in the absence of natural disasters like solar flares or plagues or pandemics or whatever, I think that within the next decade, we're probably going to see a financial reckoning day that will pretty well destroy the U.S. dollar as a currency unit. And I've encouraged my readers to prepare accordingly. In the last six years, I've done a lot of financial planning for people, and I've never seen as much fear in my memory as far as just in the end, I guess fear and concern in the average person about economic, you know, potential economic disaster, as I've seen in the last few years. How would you, if you were encouraging somebody and trying to help somebody with their financial planning and, and they're coming to you and saying, Jim, you know, I'm really concerned about the short-term potential of the United States, where do you start in applying survivalist com- concepts to financial planning? Well, I guess the, the key concept, of course, is the, what I call a deep larder concept. It's what um, the author, John Pugsley, referred to as the alpha strategy, mm-hmm. which you've discussed before in your show. Right. Um, and that is basically to stock up things in depth so that you, A, have a survival stockpile that you can depend upon for your family of, of food and um, Everything from cleaning supplies to fuel, uh, medical supplies, that sort of thing. Um, it, it's a stockpile for you, and it's also um, inflation insurance. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you look at the debt and deficit, I think at this point, our government's only real escape will be through hyperinflation. And if you can foresee hyperinflation, you know that anything that you have that's invested in dollar-denominated assets is potentially at risk, and an excellent hedge is to invest in tangibles, Uh, things like specifically precious metals, common caliber ammunition, long-term storage food, and so on. I think that that is a wise course of action, and if people do recognize the threat of hyperinflation on the horizon, it is the most logical way to proceed for American families. And except for someone who lives in a microscopic apartment, the average American family home has the storage space that's required to stock up with an alpha strategy. And I think it's a a wise wise course. my emphasis, of course, I'm, I'm what they call a guns and groceries survivalist. So my emphasis is on first stocking up on beans, bullets, and mandates, And then after you have a, a sufficient level of stocking for your family in those areas, then go ahead and invest a bit in precious metals. And my personal favorite is silver. With silver, Currently under $16 an ounce, I think it's an absolute bargain. 
Just don't make the mistake of buying big silver. You don't want to buy 100 ounce Engelhard bars, or, or God forbid, the uh, even bar the larger um, uh, bars um, that require an assay fee. You want small silver because the small coins are more readily recognizable and they're in a denomination that's appropriate for barter. You don't go bartering things with a, you know, for things with a hundred ounce bar. It's simply, it's like a Krugerrand. It's, it's simply too compact a form of wealth for practical barter. Things like silver dimes and silver quarters or silver half dollars or even something as large as a one ounce trade dollar like an American Eagle are more practical for barter because that's the size of currency unit that you need for typical day-to-day -day transactions for a loaf of bread, a, a gallon of milk, a gallon of gasoline, a gallon of kerosene. That's what you really want for a barter. I have question on two different questions on, on, on that. And on precious metals in general would be the second question, but the first one is on barter. I really struggle with that um, concept because I cannot see any, I can't imagine in the, in the current world that we live in uh, where, you know, the average person, if you, uh, you see these videos and, and I, I assume maybe you have, but you watch these videos sometimes that people in the precious metals community produce where they go out and ask the average person on the street, um, you know, how much is a, how much is a, an ounce of gold worth? How much is this, uh, you know, an ounce of silver worth? It's really hard for me to imagine any kind of scenario in a, in a modern world uh, where people would have any concept of using things like silver coins as barter. Is that actually something that you think is uh, realistic or is that more of just like, well, it, it's, better to, it's better to have this just in case it does happen? Well, I, I think that in, at the present time where people are so dollar-oriented, they don't have a really good concept of the inherent value of precious metals. But once the dollar uh, suffers mass inflation or is wiped out, people will very quickly catch on to the real value of precious metals. And um, it, at that point, the key question will not be the exact market value, but rather the trustworthiness of those per particular metals. And that's why I like circulated pre-1965 American silver coinage, uh, dimes, quarters, and maybe half dollars, because those are the most widely recognized in the States. They're going to be the most trusted, and they're the ones that have suffered the least counterfeiting. Uh, the, the Morgan uh, silver dollars, for example, are very widely being copied and, and baked by, um, they're coming out of China right now. But to the best of my knowledge, the Chinese are not faking well-worn uh, silver dimes and quarters. There's just no numis numismatic value in them, so they don't have any impetus to fake them. So I, I think that precious metals will indeed have a role in barter, but it will come fairly late in a disaster situation because in, the, in a very short term, all people are going to be looking for in barter are going to be things like food and common caliber ammunition. So you should have those stocked up as well, of course. In fact, stock those first. Uh, after a few months, though, or, or maybe even only a few weeks, price equilibrium will be met very quickly. And even as the U.S. dollar is plummeting, 
people will recognize the value of a silver dime, a silver quarter, silver half dollar, and be able to recognize that in terms of its equivalence in other barter materials or it, for an hour or a day of a man's labor. The, the beauty of a free market is that prices find equilibrium very quickly. And unless there's artificial constraints on a commodity, the, the price-finding mechanism of the free market is phenomenal. I really struggle with the idea of precious metals uh, because I don't have any peg to which I could ever – like. To, to which I can affix their value. And let me give you a little ba- bit of background. I'm almost 30 years old. So in my lifetime, there's never been any connection between the U.S. dollar and any kind of, you know, and any kind of external standard, the, the gold-backed standard that I think it was Nixon, I think was, uh, not Nixon, mm-hmm. Nixon ended, right? Um, yes. And so there's never any connection. And, and then I'm past the generations where, uh, I'm past the generations where, uh, uh, where there were even my parents or grandparents, you know, my grandparents are dead now. They're the, the last ones who probably had any connection to that. I can't see, you know, to me, it, the idea of having uh, uh, any significant amount of wealth stored in precious metals would cause me to wake up and sweat because I have no ability to control the value of that. I'd rather get me personally. I look at it and say I'd rather get rid of every every bit of this metal that is just completely subject to the ups and downs of some kind of external market. And I'd invest if I it, whether it was something in like real estate or something like a business where I had cash where I had some amount of cash flow that would give me some ability to say I have a good here. I have a service that I can that I can peg something onto as far as cash flow. So I have this, the idea of having any substantial sort of wealth in something that I don't control that just simply sits there and is purely subject to the whims of the market, th- that, would, like, that would freak me out as an investor. Where well, am I Josh, wrong? What am I missing? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right in, in part because, let's face it, a precious metals investment is a non-productive investment. Right. It's just sitting there. It's not going to create a cash flow for you, and you are correct in that um, the the because the precious metals market are markets are are relatively thin compared to equities, for example. Right. I mean the the total value of all of the gold in the world is probably only worth about maybe one tenth of the value of the of the S and P. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a thin market, which means the price swings in it can be huge, and it's also a manipulated market because there's uh, a lot of investors, institutional investors, that are uh, shorting the market at any given time. And when you have the combination of a thin market and um, heavy manipulation, the, the the price swings can be huge. But right now, for example. With silver under sixteen dollars an ounce, I consider that a pretty strong buy because I recognize it's a a manipulated market. But I look at the fundamental of what happened two days ago, which was the U.S. Mint sold out two million ounces of silver one ounce American Eagle coins in two hours, immediately after the the whole annual allotment wow. of silver eagles was sold. 
in less than a day. Had no idea. Wow. Yes, that shows you the real market versus the manip manipulated paper market for silver. The inherent value of silver is always still there. Now, um, I am a big believer, again, in common caliber ammunition, storage food, and other things that can be bartered. I'm also a big believer in productive farmland. Mm -hmm. And if someone wants to hedge into real estate, I would say don't be buying suburban apartment blocks. Don't be buying suburban houses right now. Look for productive farmland in what's called a dryland farming region. There you can grow crops reliably just based on the annual rainfall. It doesn't require any additional irrigation. Mm -hmm. That's the place that I, where I would be investing uh, for both survival and for uh, long-term long productivity that's fairly drought-resistant. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't be buying farmland in California right now. They're, they're in the middle of a drought that may go on another five years. Who knows? But if you look at dryland farming regions like the Moscow-Idaho area, for example, you really can't go wrong because not only is the land itself a good investment, but if times get really bad, you could relocate there and either farm the land yourself or or job it out to have someone else tenant farm it for you or contract farm it for you. But you would also, a lot of these dryland farming regions are in fairly remote areas that are well removed from major population centers. So it's a win-win. Not, not only do you have reliable crop production, but you also have an incredibly safe place to be in the event of urban chaos. If there's rioting and looting in the major cities, you're not going to want to be there. Uh, I would much rather be living on the outskirts of Moscow, Idaho, or Montpelier, Idaho, mm -hmm. uh, someplace like that with a very lightly populated farming region that'll be well insulated from any of that urban chaos. If you were, I assume you probably get this question a lot, but to an average, so I, I, I enjoy reading, I have enjoyed your novels, and I assume that you've employed, you know, some, some amount of literary license to make them especially entertaining. If we had a. Yes, I have. <laughs> for the sake of drama, I, you know, for example, right. I show people making some very bad decisions, and that's partly literary license for the sake of drama. To, sh right. to show the, the implications of those bad decisions. But go ahead. Right. So, and, I, and I think that's as it should be. It'd be pretty boring to watch a movie of a normal person's life. But, you know, a, 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 an author or, or a creator it needs to spice something up. But where I always struggle with, with, with even some of the advice that, that, that you, you give when you, when you talk about, well, when this happens, is I can't, I can't conceive of how... Uh, I can't conceive of any events that would actually be like likely that would lead to the type of mass uh, region-wide, nationwide violence, um, scarcity, shortage that would affect it on a large scale. It makes sense to me on a local scale. It makes sense to me even on perhaps a regional scale. But I can't conceive of it on a larger national scale. So, well, let me go ahead. Joshua, let, let me illustrate uh, a couple of potential situations that could bring down the national power grids and the lack of that grid power could cause massive social upheaval. Uh, one would be an X-class solar flare 
and that would fry transformers all up and down the systems of all the major power producing networks. There's actually three American power grids, an Eastern grid, a Western grid, and a Texas grid. Mm -hmm. If we had an X-class solar flare, it could take down the power grids for months or even years. And the lack of grid power would be absolutely devastating to our society because we're so dependent on grid power for so many things. Mm -hmm. uh, all, we've, you know, our telecommunications, our, our computerized reordering systems for inventory control, we use Kanban just-in-time inventory control, uh, the routing for um, major transportation systems like um, uh, trains and barges, for example, all that could be disrupted. Not to mention the lack of grid power would cause an absolute public health crisis because grid power uh, is used to provide civic water supplies for 95% of American cities. There's very few cities that are on gravity-fed water from end to end. You know, like San Francisco is, a, is, an, is an exception because they have water that comes out of the High Sierras from Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and it, and it literally is gravity fed all the way to, to the taps in, in the city of San Francisco, more than 100 miles away. But that's a rarity. Most cities are dependent upon electric pumps to pump water up to gravity tanks and then uh, there's water available to the taps. So without grid power, people are going to be without water within 72 hours. And that would cause huge, huge um, problems. Uh, there, would, there would be, a, in the Southwest, for example, where there's no other sources of water, you're going to see a huge number of refugees hitting the road almost immediately mm -hmm. if they don't have water. The other implications of a grid power collapse have to do with the medical infrastructure. We have a huge number of people in America who are dependent upon medical insulin, who are dependent upon uh, C, uh, CPAP machines for people with sleep apnea, uh, oxygen concentrators or tanked uh, medical oxygen for people who have COPD or other um, respiratory problems. And of course, there's a huge number of people who are on kidney dialysis as well, and that requires grid power. Uh, most of the American hospitals and um, and so far as I know, nearly all of the kidney uh, kidney dialysis standalone centers are dependent on grid power, and they they either have no backup generators or only very limited fuel supply for their backup generators. So we could not just see you know rioting and looting in the big cities, but we could see a massive die off of population. And the scary thing to me, Joshua, is there's so many different things that could bring down the power grids, whether it's a hacker attack, EMP, solar flares, or uh, simply uh, something like a pandemic where public utility employees are afraid to leave their homes so they don't show up to work and the, and the, uh, the power systems go offline. It's quite a cascading chain of events. Yeah. And then, so, but then do you, does that, and I haven't studied, I guess, his extensive historical context, but then do you assume that automatically leads to uh, widespread violence? Uh, because that's, that's obviously a main feature in, in your novels, but is there any historical evidence of that? Well, if you look at what's going on in Liberia right now, uh, even they have a pandemic going on, mm -hmm. and there's so many, so few people who are willing to transport goods 
or provide services that they're right in the midst of an economic collapse right now, and and yet um, their power is still up. Well, as up as it usually is in Africa, the standard is usually power about five days out of every seven, mm-hmm. and people are used to sporadic power outages. So when the power's on, they hurry up and do their laundry and and uh, you know pump water and and do everything else they 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 do with grid power. Um, here in the states, people are incredibly complacent and incredibly dependent on grid power. And if the grid were to go away for any reason, I think their 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 lives would just crumble. And certainly commerce, as we know it, would come to a screeching halt. Just look at the architecture that we've had for the last 30 years in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, most retail architecture is all built around these big boxes. They're con- it's concrete slab tilt-up architecture which has very few, if any, windows, and the few windows that are there can't be opened. So uh, in the southern half of the United States, you're going to have giant sweat boxes, and in the northern half of the United States, you're going to have giant refrigerators or freezers. You can't do business in a, in a dark cave. And, of course, uh, modern retail is all built around modern um, restocking systems, inventory control, and point of purchase, uh, credit card transactions. There, you know, it's conceivable that that businesses, small businesses, could convert back to a manual cash box type till. But most major retailers are just simply going to have to shut their doors, yeah. or more likely, the doors will be opened for them by crowds of looters. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I live in West Palm Beach, Florida, and it would be it, it would be uninhabitable down here with the majority of buildings without air conditioning, and it would just simply yeah our entire our entire uh, society and infrastructure is built upon having air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were so. I can get basically halfway there. Maybe it's my own personal normalcy bias. Maybe it's I don't want to accept it. It's possible. I don't know. Maybe as time goes on, um, I, I struggle with this because I think of myself. Have you have you ever read a book called uh, The Rational Optimist by a man named Matt Ridley? No, I haven't. Okay. So fundam- the pre- major premise of the book uh, is that uh, we're living in a time that throughout history is better than any time else throughout history. And that is measured by standard of living, quality of life on just about every metric, whether it's um, general, uh, you know, the amount of money we have, the accessibility of entertainment, right. health, ex- exactly. Yeah, but- I generally agree with that. Um, we are living in the best of times, but unfortunately, my view of it is what we're doing is breeding a whole generation of people who are incompetent, know-nothings with no practical skills, mm-hmm. and that if any of that modern infrastructure were taken away, they would be helpless. Right. And that makes sense to me. So there's this constant, because I come from the traditional financial planning world, there's this need in financial planning to be optimistic. And I, so I consider myself a rational optimistic in the long, optimist in the long term. However, I have been involved in enough, you know, I'm from Florida, I, you know, we've been through hurricanes, I've, I've, there, there are wars all around the world, you watch these things. And so I think, how can I help my clients prepare for these things? And I think just because in the long term, you know, I expect freedom to grow massively over the long term, I see it happen 
happening now. But that doesn't mean that in the short term there's not going to be greater oppression uh, as 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 freedom generally grows with the access to information. So I struggle with how to integrate these two things together. Uh, and I, I get a lot of questions on the show from young, young men, young women, uh, people trying to say, how do I plan my finances so that I can be financially independent? That's a major theme that we talk about on the show here. And I think that some of the concepts from survivalism have a real uh, benefit because you know if I had thirty million bucks, and I would imagine because I know you do some consulting, I would imagine I can't I can't see why anybody wouldn't want to have a, a safe place somewhere with a well stocked bunker uh, with you know a well thought out plan. That would just seem to me to be like why wouldn't you want that? Um, but that's a little more daunting for somebody with middle class income, middle class scenario where there's all these things pulling at the money to say how I can't get to the bunker. So you know why even start? If you were giving advice to, to a young person like me, 30 years old, uh, young family, middle-class lifestyle, would you take it in a staged approach, in a stepped approach? Would you, uh, how would you recommend I, I, I think through that to, to build more resilience into my lifestyle? Well, you, you definitely want more resilience, and I think a staged or phased approach is, is ideal. At my website, it's survivalblog.com. If you look in the left-hand bar, I have a link to Smart Getting Started. And it talks about how people should think through the full implications of of societal disruption and how they can take steps in an organized manner that won't blow their budget, but that will put them miles ahead of their neighbors. The average American family only has about a three-day supply of food on hand. Simply increasing that to 30 or 60 days is going to vastly increase your chances of survival. Between that and a water filter, that's the other really key preparation for just about any disaster, because that's kind of the common denominator is disruption of water supplies, even in a flood, because you end up with contaminated water. Um, Those simple steps can, can put people miles ahead of their neighbors And even if someone is on a modest budget, even for a retiree or someone who's a college student, those simple things they can do from an actuarial standpoint will greatly increase their chances of survival. I I tend to look at everything from the standpoint of an actuarial accountant, the people who do accounting for, for life insurance agencies, for example. You look at the most likely threats and... Uh, the implications of those threats, and then you mitigate them. And the the total outlay is not all that great. And as I mentioned before, there's actually financial advantages to stocking up by buying in bulk, for example. Um, it's um, the cost of living. If if someone is self-employed, I highly recommend that they move to a lightly populated retreat region. Not just because it's a safe place to be, but because you're going to be living less expensively, the cost of living will be lower, and your quality of life will be higher because the crime rate will be lower, there'll be less smog, crime, taxes, gun control, all of that is is a lot less likely in those lightly populated regions. So there's multiple advantages, and... You know, the, the bottom line for any investor is every dollar 
that you're not spending unnecessarily represents one more dollar that can be invested productively. And for the survivalist viewpoint on investing, it, it all meshes pretty neatly. Uh, the only drawbacks to buying in bulk, of course, are spoilage or theft of your supplies. So as long as you have good security and you're storing everything uh, at a, a reasonable temperature and in containers that aren't subject to the attacks by, by vermin, by bugs or mice or rats or whatever, you're sitting pretty. You're ahead of the game. That's the way I look at it. Now, um, history may prove me wrong, but if you look at the history of the 20th century, it was a history of larger and larger wars that affected civilian populations to a greater and greater extent with every passing year. Um, warfare in the 21st century is, is going to take place a lot in urban areas and it's going to directly impact civilian populations. You know, if you look back to the, the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, wars were practically a spectator sport for, for most citizens. It was something they read about in the newspapers that took place way out in the middle of nowhere or in some foreign country. But the wars of the 21st century may be up close and personal for a lot of people, and they're going to take place on urbanized terrain. If you look at the, the training that's going on with most of the modern militaries right now, they're focusing on urban warfare because they recognize that society has become very urbanized and that the most likely battlefields will be urban areas. So to me, the, the logical... Uh, escape hatch is to move to a lightly populated region where you're going to be buffered from both um, the chaos of rioting and looting or the potential impact of out-and-out uh, -out warfare, whether it's civil war or World War III. On the warfare perspective, one of the things I get really concerned about and why I wish more people were at least, you know, moderately prepared for, you know, basic emergencies is I get concerned about the expansion of, of government control. And it seems to me that those who are able to be more self-reliant uh, are more likely to fight for what is morally right than those who are dependent upon a system. I, 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 Absolutely, Joshua. And, and I, I take it a step further and say that it's only those people who are well-prepared and who are not focused on where they're going to get their next meal in the midst of a disaster or martial law or whatever. It's only those people who can step back and look at the big picture and be part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. Right. If all you are focused on is where are you going to find drinking water and how am I going to find the next meal for my children, you can't have your eye on the big picture. You can't be part of the problem. You can't be someone who's uh, you know, helping to organize... Uh, relief efforts or organize uh, to reinstitute constitutional government, you just don't, you simply won't have the time, the energy, the focus or the mobility to be involved in those efforts. You're, you're going to be, you know, your, your worldview is going to be a radius of about 100 feet. 
you know, the immediate area around your house and, and providing for your family. Right. It's only the people who are well-stocked and self-sufficient who can really be part of the solution. Right. And I, I look throughout history and I look at times, you know, whether it's World War II with, with Nazi Germany or whether it's, you know, 1855 or 1860 in the United States of America fighting slavery. And I wonder, you know, would I have been, would I have, would I have had the base and the foundation to work from to fight for what is right? Or would I have been, you know, just gone along with the crowd? And then I look at life today and I wonder, wait a second, Joshua, are you fighting for what is right or are you just going along with the crowd? And I find it a searching question because the way that I was taught history growing up, it seems as though I was always taught that that was something else that happened back then. And yet when I look around today, I mean, there's so much uh, evil in the world today that Mm -hmm. still exists. And I I just ask myself the question, am I, you know, am I, am I doing what I need to do today to fight that? evil and spread what is what is right and what is good to free people from uh from slavery to 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 just just to help my neighbor and Mm -hmm. but i can only do that from a position of strength you know the best way to help the poor is not be one of them first so that you can actually pull them up exactly yes um i i concur wholeheartedly i think that uh people need to focus on the things that will will make them independent, or whether it being economically independent or, or food independent if, in terms of being self-sufficient. And like I have a, a big emphasis in my blog on small livestock and large-scale gardening, for example, which is what we do here at our ranch. Uh, that's the sort of thing that will keep people out of the clutches of government and in a position where they can dispense copious Christian charity. My overall outlook on life is from a Christian libertarian standpoint. Uh, I'm a libertarian in that I don't believe in interfering in other people's business, but I also have the, the, the moral background as a Christian to you know, recognize what is truly right and wrong. I just don't think it's the role of government to try to uh, do anything more than um, penalize things like rape, theft, and arson, for example. Uh, that's where I draw the line. I think everything else should be a matter of Christian conscience, and I would much rather see uh, people socially shunned rather than have an enormous uh, government bureaucracy and infrastructure that's, in effect, enslaving us right now because in the quest for the, the war on drugs or uh, the war on terror or whatever, people are sacrificing their individual liberty to a huge extent, more than most people even recognize. You know, people are still saying, oh, it's a free country. Well, is it? Uh, I, I really don't think so. So um, as a Christian libertarian, I think it's, it is not at all mutually exclusive with survivalism. It's certainly not mutually exclusive with uh, a, a preparedness outlook that involves privately owned firearms, for example, which I'm a big believer in. It, it squares very nicely with the whole concept of reducing the size of government, increasing individual liberty, and increasing self-reliance. 
Um, we've spent the last 60 years in this country essentially creating an enormous welfare class that's incredibly dependent on government. My goal is to see that reversed and to see more individual responsibility, more self-sufficiency, and more um, self-reliance so that people don't even have to think about looking to the government for handouts. Because in, in the final analysis, when someone is taking a handout from the government, what they're really doing is they're asking the government to forcibly take money out of my wallet and give it to them. I would much rather look at charity from a Christian standpoint, which is voluntary charity. And if it weren't for the fact that I'm being taxed about 30% of my income, I think I would be able to tithe much more heavily to my church. Uh, I think that the, our whole society is kind of turned upside down from where it was 100 years ago, right. where the church and the family were the centerpieces of society, not government. Right. I agree. I'd like to ask you about financial independence, and I'm curious. Do you mind my asking how old you are? I'm 54 years old, and I'm relatively independent financially. If you were, that was going to be my question. If you were cut off, whether through a dramatic external event or whether you just chose to, you know, to withdraw from the the system, um, has survivalism and personal preparedness led you to a place where you would consider yourself financially independent? Yes, it has. Um, in in part because um, I was investing in silver when silver was around five dollars and fifty cents an ounce. So even with the recent drop in silver to the $15 and change range, I've still tripled my money. And uh, I think that as time goes on and we see silver uh, again reach equilibrium uh, in a, a real-world valuation, uh, silver is probably going to be somewhere north of $75 an ounce by the time all is said and done. And I'm talking within the next five to ten years. So... My silver investing has certainly paid off. Uh, my self-sufficiency projects certainly have paid off. Although I live in an area with very low uh, power rates because I'm, I'm in the inland northwest region of the United States where we have very inexpensive hydroelectric power, the photovoltaic power that we produce um, has, has paid off fairly well, even, even in relation to the low uh, power utility rates we have locally. We eat very inexpensively because we buy in bulk and because we grow a lot of our own food. Uh, we are at the point now where we have three breeding cows at our property. And with the current incredibly high price of both milk and beef, and, and for that matter, butter right now, they're at all-time highs. So our breeding stock... Um, is, is worth a pretty penny right now, especially people are looking for what are called hand-milked cows rather than uh, typical uh, mega-farm-type cows that are used to just being herded in and mechanically milked. The cattle that we raise are used to being handled, and in close, close proximity to people, we really develop a bond with our cattle, our, our dairy cows, so that um, they're quite suitable to sell into a family that wants to hand milk a cow. So I think our, our breeding stock has certainly paid off well. And um, the other thing that I stocked up on very heavily 
was firearms and ammunition. And in the in the last couple of years, uh, there have been huge there were huge shortages of both. And I was able to parlay some of my investments in ammunition, for example, back into cash for other investing. And I made a huge profit. I, for example, I, I, a friend and I split a purchase of 100,000 rounds of 22 long rifle rimfire ammunition four years ago. And we were buying that ammunition for around two cents a round. And right now, 22 rimfire is incredibly hard to find, and it's anywhere from 10 to 15 cents a round. Wow. We'll do the math on that. Wow. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're sitting pretty right now. So uh, I think that the, the survivalist approach to investing is one that has multiple advantages. Not only are you physically insulating yourself and your family from harm, but you also, the, the whole survivalist outlook is geared toward practical tangibles. And uh, Tangibles have the advantage in that they are not subject to fluctuations in the currency units, and they're also not um, vulnerable to the whims of government. Because uh, you never know when uh, the government is either going to monkey with the value of the currency unit, which it looks like will be happening very soon with mass inflation of the U.S. dollar, or when they might, our government might try to nationalize IRAs, for example, or 401ks, and tell everyone, well, it's now going to be under a, a nationalized system, and we're going to quite benevolently, benevolently um, invest your money in the stock market um, with stocks of our choice because it's in your best interest. You know, when you, when you get a government that's big enough to provide everything. Uh, to everyone, it's also that same government is also big enough to take everything from everyone. Would you? So I was going to, I was going to ask you about tangibles uh, and with, go into more depth on that. But real quick, since you mentioned IRAs, if you were talking, so I'm a. I concede, I concede that it is possible, and because I come from a traditional financial planning background, a primary part of what we do is help people with IRA planning, Roth IRA planning, 401ks, etc. And professionally speaking, I'm not sure of any way to be involved in the industry if, if you didn't have the conviction that that was in the best interest of the people that you're working with. If you, if you came from the, the perspective that nobody should participate in those tax advantage accounts, I think you'd quickly be forced out of the industry with, with malpractice. Uh, <laughs> Uh, be, because it's a standard that is a standard part of of our profession. If you were going to try to give any maybe more detailed proof or evidence or substantiate your fear about uh, the government changing the rules, would you be able to pr substantiate that with with other evidence at all? Well, yes, I, I've had some links in my blog to um, some planning that's gone on by so-called public interest groups. And a lot of these have, and these groups have been in an advisory capacity to the Obama administration. If you look through Survival Blog, um, search on, and we have a search box on the right-hand side, type in uh, the words uh, IRA or 401k 
K with K in uh, parentheses and the word nationalize and you'll find links to several articles that um, I posted that can pretty well substantiate that. There is a, there is a significant risk and it, there's nothing worse than a cornered politician in my estimation. If, if they get into a real bind, they're going to do what's expedient. Right. And uh, if, if you look back at the, the nation's last really big financial crisis, what, what, what happened? The, the FDR administration instituted a huge number of new federal bureaucracies. That's where all the alphabet soup agencies, as they call them, uh, were created with the Works Progress Administration and uh, the National Recovery Act and the CCCs and um, those were kind of short-lived organizations, but a lot of the alphabet soup agencies are still with us and growing. Mm -hmm. um, and at that same time period, they also pretty well panicked and in the, in, you know, there was a lot of uh, bank robbery going on because of the economic disruption. So they instituted the National Firearms Act of 1934, which uh, required a $200 transfer tax for, for machine guns and, and uh, sound suppressors for weapons, for example. That came in under FDR. The other thing that came in under FDR was both a revaluation of the price of gold and a forced turn-in of, of all bullion uh, gold investments, it was an, they were all nationalized by the government. At the old, in fact, they they nationalized it all at what was it, fifteen dollars an ounce, and then once they had everyone's gold, they repegged the price of gold to twenty eight dollars an ounce. That was a neat trick. <laughs> uh, so, again, there's nothing worse than a cornered politician, and never underestimate the ability of politicians to overreact to a situation. And don't get caught at the confluence of a crisis and public policy. Right. Because it's, let's face it, it's not the politicians that suffer. It's not the banksters that suffer. It, uh, it's the, your average, everyday, wage-earning American that suffers in these kind of crises. We're the ones who pay, either in forms, a form of higher taxes or greater regulation, um, greater control, the, the real winners are the banking establishment and the politicians. Mm -hmm. And the survivalist outlook on investing that I mentioned previously is the best way to insulate yourself from the vagaries of political change and, and uh, administration of government via crisis or government by emergency, as Dr. Gary North calls it. <laughs> yeah, it's really, man, I tell you, as a, as a young man, it's so tough to weed through um, this type of analysis because it's so hard for me to gain historical perspective because in my living memory, it's hard to trace major, major, uh, uh, major changes in law. Uh, yeah. But yet, uh, go ahead. I'm just one generation older, but my parents grew up in the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I was given just before I went off to college was a U.S. $10 gold piece 
that our family refused to turn in in the 1934 gold confiscation. Uh, it was kind of passed on as a family heirloom. Mm -hmm. My parents grew up during that time period, and those memories were still fairly fresh to them. And they they definitely inculcated me as in, in terms of just how important it is to be able to feed your family, right. literally. I mean, there, there literally was mass starvation in the United States. Most people don't realize, but there were somewhere between 2 million and 10 million deaths in the 1930s that were attributable to the Depression. Wow. People simply were starving to death. It was that, that's how hard the times were. But now, a lot of people look back kind of nostalgically on the 1930s, you know, watching TV shows like the Waltons. Well, the Waltons were the survivalists. They were the ones living out in the country right. and raising pigs and having a big garden um, and not being dependent on government. Your average Americans that were in the big cities or the suburbs really suffered in the Great Depression. And if someone was out of job, their job, they were out of luck and they were either um, forced into some sort of assistance or had to depend on their country cousins. And Joshua, that brings me back to one other very important point, And that is, here we are on the cusp of another possible depression. Mm -hmm. And this one I think will be inflationary rather than deflationary triggered when it happens. But consider this. In the Depression of the 1930s, still fully 30% of the American population was actively engaged in farming, ranching, or fishing. That meant that most people had country cousins that they could depend on for produce and for meat. Well, now we have a situation where literally 99% of the population is being fed by just 1% of the population. Right. That's how many people are actively involved in farming, ranching, or fishing right now. Only 1% of the population. So even if we were to have a depression that was an exact duplicate of the depression of the 1930s, I don't think it would be very survivable. We, we don't we have very long chains of supply and we don't most people don't have country cousins let's face right, it right and uh, we also have a society that's much less civil than it was in the 1930s if you think John Dillinger was bad um, just do a repeat of the 1930s now and I think we would see a crime rate that is absolutely off the scale and it won't be bank robberies it'll be home invasion robberies right. And I would say even those of us who do have country cousins, so for example, I have uh, cousins, I live in Florida, but I have cousins in Colorado, excuse me, Wyoming now, they moved to uh, Nebraska, um, right on the corner, right on the, the line between Wyoming and Nebraska, but the farming and ranching operation that they have is uh, large-scale corn, some wheat, and uh, a feed, uh, cattle feedlot, and you know a small sh uh, sheep feedlot as well. That doesn't necessarily lend itself to the same type of of, uh, of ongoing. It's not it's not quite as easy to. It's probably better than not having any food, but that's not exactly the type of food that you can eat every single day as perhaps uh, a more integrated farm would have been back in the 1930s. Right in, in the 1930s, a lot of the farming that was going on is what's called truck farming, where just one farm might produce ten or twelve different crops. Well, right now, modern American agriculture is geared toward a number of things. One is dependence on grid power and uh, uh, electrically pumped irrigation. 
secondarily, it's all geared toward monoculture, which is one crop per farm. And thirdly, it's all very um, intensively geared toward both pesticides and herbicides. It will not be an easy transition for those farms to revert to 1930-style farming. There's going to be a steep learning curve, and the productivity is going to drop off tremendously if that kind of transition has to take place. Right. Uh, I have uh, three more quick questions for you. We're right at an hour. Uh, do you have time for three of them, or do I need to pick one of them? No, go ahead. Okay. Let's do all three. Okay. So real, the first one is tangible. The second, tangibles, the second is nickels. And then finally, I want to come back to the reputation of the survivalist community. But let's start with tangibles. I've, uh, you mentioned earlier your investments in 22, you know, 22 long rifle ammunition. And so I've looked at this, and I've th- always thought it would be interesting. And one of the things I'm intrigued with is how you can find these little uh, inefficient markets, whether it's in classic Rolex watches or you seem to have this just incredibly deep knowledge of uh, like all these weird firearm uh, magazine, you know, what's, <laughs> you know, the, uh, this, this type of magazine, these are super valuable and you get them at three bucks a pop. And then three, three years later, it's, it's, you know, it's, they're 20 bucks a pop. And, and so like, you seem to have this depth of knowledge and I even look right now, I mean, you look around the firearm marketplace and it seems to me like you can go pick up, you know, what was it? Two years ago, an AR 15 was going to cost you, I don't know how many thousands of dollars. And today, I mean, the price has just plummeted. So I yeah. wonder, as have the stripped receivers. Right now, you can buy a stripped AR-15 receiver for $49. Wow. That's a good investment as far as I'm concerned because <laughs> three years ago, you'd be lucky if you could find a stripped receiver for $600. Wow. So how does how does somebody get so I've thought I have a friend who started a uh, uh, he got his firearms license and he started a kind of a, a gun shop basically out of his garage as a dealer uh, he wound up and not, didn't work wound, wind up being very profitable for him but I've thought about this as a way to compound benefits is that if I were to set up a you know a firearms dealer uh, get a dealer license and start dealing firearms well then I can take advantage of having a business that's something that I'm interested in and that I enjoy and I can compound the benefits of the business tax code with potentially having uh, an investment portfolio that uh, perhaps I could apply a little bit of skill to, and then you always have it under your control. How does somebody go about getting knowledgeable about that kind of thing, though? Is that even a realistic scenario? Oh, no, it is quite realistic, although I generally recommend that people opt for either firearms accessories or for federally exempt pre-1899 antique firearms, cartridge guns. Uh, that don't require a federal firearms license because I don't like the entanglements of a federal firearms license. And part of it is the BATF can come and inspect your inventory whenever they want. Uh, it, accepting a license like that really makes you kind of vulnerable and then raises your profile. Um, so the realist in me tells me that uh, people should either be involved with, with just firearms accessories or parts or pre-1899 antique firearms that are not, they're not even considered firearms under the law. They're considered just antiques. And even though these guns shoot cartridges rather than their muzzle loading, uh, they're still quite effective guns. I, I wrote a FAQ, an FAQ on that subject, and if you go to the FAQ button at survivalblog.com and then click on the pre-1899 firearms FAQ, that explains it. But generally, 
I would recommend that if someone wants to start a home-based business, um, something that's firearms related might be a good idea, although currently we're in a down cycle. So this is, we're more in the acquisition mode right now because prices are falling. I like buying into falling markets to buy inventory and then selling into rising markets. So if, if someone has a steady income from another job, this would be a good time to start stocking up a, uh, a home-based firearms-oriented business, but don't expect really strong sales for the next couple of years. But, you know, the pendulum will swing backwards, and, uh, and you never know when there'll be uh, a highly publicized event that could cause uh, new legislation, uh, especially at the state and local level. The, federally, we seem to be fairly well secure since we just uh, got a Republican majority in both the, the Senate and the House. But um, I think this would be a, it would be a good business uh, for people to consider. In terms of the knowledge base, take full advantage of uh, some of the standard references that are out there. Of course, there's a lot on the Internet, like the, like the fact I just mentioned that I wrote. But... Um, one excellent book is called Flaterman's Guide to Antique Firearms and Their Values. Uh, for modern guns, there's a, a book, a standard reference is called the Blue Book of American of uh, Blue Book of Firearms, and it's published annually. Um, that way, you can buy intelligently, and it'll give you all the details on all the model variations and what to look for and what to look out for. A lot of it, though, comes with experience. I recommend that people spend a lot of time at gun shows and just spend a lot of time talking with the dealers and picking up knowledge about particular brands of firearms, their collectability, um, the things to, to look for in terms of desirable features, learn very carefully how to judge the condition of firearms. If you're not carrying around a bore inspection light in your pocket at a gun show, you're a fool. You really need to, to, to know how to peer down the, the bore of a firearm and, and judge its, con its condition. And just like with any other collectible, condition is everything. Whether you're talking about antique books or antique guns, it's all about condition. And everybody wants the, the, you know, the, the, the be-all and end-all is what they call mint condition. And you want to try to gradually shift your collection or your inventory toward higher and higher grade and higher condition guns. But the survivalist in me says, make sure that all those guns are also practical guns that are in common calibers. So you don't want oddball calibers that will be hard to find in the midst of a, of a, of a societal collapse. And you don't want to have such obscure or incredibly high-grade engraved or inlaid firearms that, you know, where you could buy five practical guns uh, in the same caliber that aren't um, such, you know, incredibly collectible guns. I, I would rather have five guns that are practical that I could barter rather than one gun that I might spend months or even years finding a buyer for. So I think your your concept there, Joshua, is is quite a good one, but people need to take the time to become subject matter experts, and it's the and as with any other business, it's your expertise and your ability to interact with customers 
and and uh, wholesalers that will give you the competitive edge to make a business highly profitable. If you are a know nothing, you are going to profit nothing. Right. I, the the thing I think is cool about guns uh, just the, was I remember years ago when I was much younger, and I was always. Uh, trained in from the perspective that owning precious metals is stupid uh, and and then one day I had a guy that said you know laid out the argument for gold and silver as compared to how much it cost for i don 't remember any number i can 't do the numbers off the top of my head, but how much it cost to buy a you know my grandfather in one thousand nine hundred and forty how much would it have cost him to buy a Colt 1911, uh, and then today in 2014, how much would it cost to buy a Colt 1911, and then to price that in terms of, of silver uh, versus or, paper dollars? Right, yes. and and it's <laughs> remarkably consistent. <laughs> yes, it, yeah. In fact, there's been several measures like that done. Uh, one uh, that's often cited is the price of a fine tailored men's suit. Mm-hmm. That's been right around one ounce of gold. Uh, ever ever since the 1850s. Really? Yeah. It, you uh, you could walk into a men's shop and get a tailored suit of clothes for one $20 gold piece. Wow. Which is about an ounce of gold. And right now, if you go into a men's shop, uh, it's probably going to cost you about $1,200 for a nice suit. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what, a price, what an ounce of gold is? Right. So um, some things really are timeless. It's not gold that's gone up it's dollars that have gone down and if you look on on the internet there's a number of web pages that have these really interesting calculators that show the real value of the dollar since 1917 for example or 1914 with the advent of the uh, personal income tax uh, it's really remarkable to see the 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 robbery that's gone on in slow motion through gradual inflation in this country. Most Americans do not realize that they're gradually being robbed year after year of their savings through inflation. And that's one of the huge advantages of precious metals and other tangibles is that you're sheltering yourself from the ravages of inflation. And right now, those ravages are, are fairly gradual, but still quite stark in that we've lost 95% of the purchasing power of the dollar since 1914. But just wait for mass inflation. (laughs) Then the advantages of tangibles and precious metals will be profound. But I have to point out that the investor in me comes back to that now and says, yeah, but if I'd sold the 1911 in 1940 and bought and invested that same amount of money into shares of, uh, you know, into shares of some excellent companies of America and the world, I, can, I could outfit my entire battery of firearms today <laughs> instead of only <laughs> replacing the one 1911. It's all, it's all relative, <laughs> and, and like any other portfolio, it requires balance. Right, right. I do not recommend enti- investing entirely in farmland or entirely in precious metals or entirely in firearms or entirely in equities. Right. Uh, balance is where your real protection comes in because no one can fully predict the future. And But by having some significant hedges like tangibles, like precious metals, you're at least buying yourself some fire insurance. Um, and here I'm talking fire insurance on the dollar itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, second, second question on my list is you, uh, 
I can't remember if it was first on your page or whether it was somewhere else referenced, but you have at least in the past been a proponent of purchasing nickels as an as yes. a guaranteed investment, essentially. Could you explain the concept behind that, the advantages of sure. it, and then also the disadvantages of that strategy? Yes. Well, like precious metals investing, uh, it's it's a fairly non-productive asset in that you have to have the nickels in your possession, which means you can't be lending them out or investing that money in stocks, for example, to produce dividends. Or, or in the case of uh, someone like me who raises livestock, the money I invest in livestock breeds. Okay, <laughs> Right, it multiplies. If you have a pile of nickels, it's not breeding, and it's not, it's not producing interest, and it's not producing dividends. That's the, the drawbacks. Um, oh, and also, they're pretty bulky. Uh, so there is the the risk of theft, uh, although it'd have to be a burglar with a really strong back. Uh, right. I have five thousand dollars face value in nickels sitting in boxes right now, uh, in a walk-in vault, and it weighs oh gosh over two thousand pounds. Wow! It's it's, it's a pile uh, that's about three feet high, about a foot deep, and six feet wide. So they're they're fairly bulky, very heavy. But here's the advantages. A nickel can still be spent as a nickel. So the downside risk is minimal. It, it's like any, it, the downside risk is essentially the same risk as paper dollars. Mm-hmm. The upside risk, or upside potential is huge because uh, right now it's costing the U.S. Mint nine cents to, pr- to produce each nickel. There's about eight cents worth of copper and nickel. Uh, just for your listeners that aren't familiar, U.S. nickels ever since the end of World War II have been produced with 75% copper and 25% nickel, all the way up to today's today's nickels. So, the the uh, because of gradual inflation, all the larger denomination coins have already gone way past the ones that were produced in silver went way past their base metals value uh, their base metal value uh, far exceeded their paper dollar value because of gradual inflation and that's why they had to do away with silver dimes quarters and half dollars in 1964 mm-hmm. because they were starting to be pulled out of circulation by the general public as quickly as they were minted, right? Because inflation had destroyed the value of the dollar. So the same thing, same kind of situation now exists with nickels, and uh, to a lesser extent with pennies, but they're even more bulky and, and even heavier. Um, right now, it costs the government nine cents to produce each nickel. Its base metal value is about eight cents. Now, currently, it is illegal to melt down pennies or nickels. Uh, to recover their base metals because the government would, you know, the government hates competition. <laughs> uh, so, and they don't, and they don't want to have one of those emperor's new clothes moments when if, because if they were to legalize that, people would start melting them down and there would be no pennies or nickels left in circulation. They'd be gone. Right. Um, they don't want an emperor's new clothes moment where people would basically point the, the light at government and say, huh, so what does, it mean, what does this mean for the real value of our paper dollars? They're worthless. Right. The real value is in those tangible uh, base metal or precious metal coins. So 
I do recommend buying a small hedge um, for a typical family that say, that makes say between thirty and eighty thousand dollars a year. I would say maybe buy a thousand dollars worth of nickels as a hedge. Those nickels will never lose their value, and there's considerable upside potential if uh, we go into mass inflation. Right, and and they all, uh, and once they're legal, and at some point, once they've been driven from circulation, well, the government will do the same thing they did with the silver coins, and that is to legalize their their melting for their melt value, and at that point, they will become a true commodity. And just like a $1,000 face value bag of silver, which only weighs 55 pounds, um, the, a, a standard box of nickels, a 100-roll box, which has $200 face value, because each roll of nickels is a $2 roll face value, each of those boxes will become a commodity. And they'll eventually be sold at a multiplier of their face value. Uh, right now, they're, um, e- they're even with a weak commodities market, their melt value is around eight cents per nickel. I can foresee the time when a nickel will be worth two times, three times, four times its face value, and they'll be traded as such as a commodity. The thing I love about the idea of the nickels, and it's it's one of those things that until you look at it, you think, huh. But what I love about it is the way to stack benefits in a transaction like that. And I have not done it because I I don't know where I would put, <laughs> you know, a, a pile of a pile of boxes filled with nickels at the moment. Um, but you know, but I might. You never know. I'm not sure. I, I've thought about it because when you have a guaranteed floor, you're having you have cash. And right. let's say that you're always going to keep some amount of cash. So my wife and I always keep um, currency uh, available. Uh, you never know when you need currency. And you can get great deals if you can just pull $100 bills out of your pocket uh, and get substantial discounts on items that you're buying. Or you may need it for various reasons. So mm-hmm. the cool thing about it is you have – it's one of those things where there's a built-in upside – and there's limited downside, and the downside that it is is theoretically, I guess, if you bought a thousand dollars worth of nickels, a you have to find a place to put them, uh, and which may or may not be feasible depending on your situation. If I were living in an RV, there's not a chance I would do it. But if you have a secure closet somewhere that you could do it, they, I mean, there's no reason not to. And then the only downside would be, well, I guess I would have to turn that into money if I, you know, into into excuse me, into yeah, paper currency, <laughs> right? <laughs> and right. you could, I guess, I mean, I've never done the transaction, but I mean, I guess you could walk into a bank or into a few banks and turn it into $100 bills. They'd probably look at you a little weird, but they would, do no, they do the transaction? It all the time. And in fact, there's a lot of people who do what's called coin roll hunting, looking for silver half dollars in circulation. And they go repeatedly to banks and say, I want $100 worth of half dollars. And they take those half dollars home and they search through looking through them for the uh, silver dollars that were minted between 1965 and 1970 that are 40% silver, the transitional silver half dollars. Right. Um, but then they regularly go back the, to the bank and turn them back in. Um, and there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can you take it to the bank, or uh, there's these machines called Coinstar machines. Normally they charge a fee, that's like a, I think they get like a 10% premium 
for for counting your coins and and they turn them back into the bank. Mm -hmm. But what's not very well known is Coinstar also has an option where they will give you full face value for the coins in the form of an Amazon gift card. So you could use those Amazon gift cards um, just like cash, right? Um, or you know to buy what you want, uh, mail order or uh, give them as gifts or, or, or trade those cards to someone in lieu of cash. So that way you're not going to have to pay to, to turn those nickels back in. So yes, you're right. The downside risk is absolutely minimal. Right. There's also one other advantage of nickels that I, I've never seen publicized elsewhere outside of my blog. And that is that in the event that there's a collapse of the U.S. dollar because of mass inflation, there will be a reversion to silver coinage. But the value of those silver coins will be so high that there'll be some need for smaller change. If a 10 cent uh, pre-1965 silver dime will buy you two or three loaves of bread, how are you going to make change? Right. And I think that's where nickels might come in. Because I think the nickels may become the new pennies or centimes or whatever, where... Um, people will ignore the five cent face value of the nickel and they'll just think of it as copper and nickel value and say, oh yeah, well, let's arbitrarily say that uh, 200 of those would equal the value of a silver quarter or 300 of those might represent or 400 of those might represent the silver, the value of a one ounce silver American Eagle round. So, uh, I think they may turn out to be quite useful for making change in a barter environment. Yeah, it's, it's possible. I, I can't imagine it, but <laughs> I guess it's possible. <laughs> throughout history, I mean, it certainly seems that throughout history there has been the, the buyer trimetallic working of money. It's just so hard for me to fathom. Like, you Well, know. as I mentioned earlier, price equilibrium in a free market is met very quickly. And if you look at the history of like Germany immediately after World War II, their entire economy for about a period of about two or three years was based on the value of cigarettes because the Deutschmark was worth nothing and uh, the, the, uh, the very small amount of foreign currency in circulation uh, made it almost impossible for the average German citizen to obtain. So they very quickly adopted, as a, just as a purely pragmatic measure, using cigarettes as barter currency. And the advantage of cigarettes is you could trade them individually, you could sell them, uh, trade them in a pack, or you could mm -hmm. trade them in a carton. So right. they were visible. The only problem was um, they were perishable. So right. they, weren't, they weren't an ideal barter currency, but uh, they became a de facto currency for, from the period from 1945 to about 1948 or even 1949 in Germany. Yeah, interesting. I didn't. I didn't know that. It, the, the deterioration would definitely be a problem for oh, a long-term monetary. Yeah, you had a heavy smoker in your family. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It'd probably be better than some families that have a heavy spender. <laughs> Last question I would like to ask you is about the reputation of the. Uh, I guess the survivalist um, community and the interaction with more mainstream community. I've, 
I, I've always been interested. So I grew up, uh, you know, again, I was a ham radio operator. I was involved with Aries and Racies, which are amateur radio emergency response groups for as a kid. I, you know, I live in Florida. We have hurricanes. Uh, when I was a kid, I started reading, um, you know, SAS survival manuals. And I remember when I found, uh, what was his name? Ragnar Benson. Um, yep. I assume that's a, author. yeah, he, he, I assume it's a pseudonym of some, uh, you know, pen name, but like he wrote all these books. And as a kid, I just thought, ah, oh, how cool is this stuff? And so for me, it was never a big deal. And I always, I always figured, why well, wouldn't, like, the ideas of, from the survivalist community are certainly extremely practical ideas. I've learned over the last few years as I've interacted with many wealthy people. I mean, you always need backup plans. You always need insurance policies. And as a financial planner, all I do, is, you know, we think about risk and reward and, and risk sure. and reward and you interchange between those things. So I've never... I've never talked with somebody who hasn't found uh, the ideas of of survivalism, uh, you know, practical and 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 interesting. At least if if they were moderately just thinking about real. I mean, there are real risks. Again, if I had thirty million bucks, I would want to have as part of that planning. I would want to have a well stocked ranch in a in a safe part of the world uh, with a bunker on it. But that's more that's challenging when you're getting started and you're fresh out of college and you have thirty thousand dollars of income and you've got to live on. So you've got to tailor these things. But one of the things I haven't understood. Uh, then the other part of my preamble here is. Is that recently I don't know what it is. I guess it's, but it's become maybe it's the the concerns over since the 2008 uh, economic crisis. But it seems like the ideas of survivalism and prepping and, and and whatnot have become mainstream. You walk into Barnes and Noble by my house here, and there's at least there are eight magazines sitting there on the magazine rack about uh, mm-hmm. bug out bags and 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 doomsday this and and whatnot. But there right. still seems to be this nervous tension. Between between people, and the first thing you first thing you read and you hear is uh, if you mention uh, if you mention survivalism or, or, or prepping, is you get this kind of nervous laughter. Well, those people are crazy, but you know, blah 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 blah. I don't understand why that exists. Why is there this tension between the so-called survivalist community and the so-called non-survivalist community? Why is there this kind of nervous tension where everyone feels the need to uh, poo-poo? Um, the concepts of survivalism? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. One is the mass media has done their best to demonize survivalism. If you look at the depictions of survivalists in um, popular culture, uh, they're always depicted as people with a screw loose. But why? Why? What's the agenda behind that? Well, I, that I, is, is the other factor, and that, that, that is I think that there is a deep-seated resentment of anyone who's prepared on the part of anyone who is not prepared, because it makes them feel um, inadequate, in part, uh, and the what's really going on in the back at, at the subconscious level, perhaps, uh, or or the or the non-articulated level of of, of the brain is that people realize that they haven't prepared for their families. And in the event of a disaster, they don't want to be seen as someone who's not providing for their families. So as a coping mechanism, instead of getting themselves prepared, which is what they really should do, they instead lash out at those who are prepared. It's almost a form of envy. Yeah. So I think that's what's really going on in, in, in popular culture. And unfortunately, even the shows that 
are popularizing survivalism, like uh, the National Geographic uh, Doomsday Prepper show, for example. Mm -hmm. If you'll notice, the people that volunteer to be profiled on that show tend to come from uh, a pretty unstable um, school of survivalism in that they either want to promote a product or they are some sort of exhibitionist. I mean, what, what prepper in his right mind would mention his name and his location if he's well-stocked? Yeah. It's the last thing I'd want to do. I mean, I, you know, obviously you're, you're putting yourself on some biker gang shopping list for the, for the next depression. So, um, so obviously the people that, who, have, who have volunteered and have put themselves in the limelight do not represent the majority of American preppers. I think they, they're, they're picking out publicity hounds, people who are really looking for publicity. And I really have my doubts about their real motivations. So, so they're not getting a good cross-section at all. But let me, let me ask you a question about that. Uh, can, and, I, and I'm going to disagree with you, but I'm, I'm interested in your response. Um, I watched uh, – I found that show on Netflix and I watched like a half an episode. And it just seemed like the people there, either it was the way they were per- portrayed or whether it was the way they really were. It's just almost like they're itching for – it's like they have the secret fantasy that they're hoping everything goes wrong. Um, oh, God forbid, yeah. Uh, anyone who's looking forward to that kind of disaster and living at that level – yeah. It's really out of touch with reality because yeah. we're, what we're talking about is reversion to 18th or 19th century living standards. Yeah. And if you look at the mortality rates of the 18th and the 19th century and the life expectancy of those time periods and the hardship that people lived living hand to mouth in those time periods in the pioneer days, um, it's really not a admirable lifestyle in terms of, uh, uh, you know, it's great for me to have a backup power system and to have storage food and, you know, you know all the self-sufficiency. But when you come right down to it, the, the sheer drudgery of a world without grid power, the, the absolute sweat is going <laughs> to yeah. have to be expended to live that kind of lifestyle. People have no idea. Right. I mean, just hauling water by itself, not to mention... Felling trees by hand without a chainsaw and then uh, transporting that wood, splitting that wood, stacking that wood all by hand. Wow. Yeah. My goodness, people have no clue. And if they look um, with rose-colored glasses on that kind of life and they yearn for it, I really have my doubts about them. Yeah. That, that's that's and by the way, I agree with you about carrying water. Some years ago, I went to uh, the Philippines and I spent a month month there uh, doing some some missions work in some various churches there. And we were out in this little place called Balabag, uh, Philippines, and it's the top of a mountain, at no no electricity and uh, and no running water. Well, the running water the kind you ran to get. And <laughs> and I went and I and our hosts were carrying water up the mountain, and I went and volunteered to help them. Where we put the stick and the the you know stick on my back and uh, oh, and boy. and with the five gallon five gallon you know water containers they had to carry it up from the from the spring. It was not a long way. I managed to do it because I'm decently strong. 
I couldn't do it twice. <laughs> it was just <laughs> I, I and I'm looking at these little Filipino guys and they're just trotting up and down and I just said, "Wow, I could not live this. I would have to undergo some major changes to be able to live this kind of lifestyle." Uh, I had a world of respect for them. But on the on the topic of the 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 like the interplay between cultures, um, it seems as though it, the thing when I watch those people, it seems as though it's almost looking for some vindication of of like yes, I was I was intelligent, but I feel as I've read, as I read a lot of articles and whatnot, I feel like in many ways the survivalist people that are involved in the in the survivalist community don't really help themselves because because they use language um, that. I think is oftentimes derogatory, and probably the best example that I've observed is 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 the you know, the use of the of the word sheeple, for example, and um, you oh, know zombie. I hate that one, right? And, and this is it, it's it's almost like we're so cool because we're better than everybody else, and we we're smart enough to kind of see that the world is headed for disaster, and everyone else is stupid. And that's not been my experience with the mainstream population, especially at least in financial plan. The people that I've worked with is that most people I think do care about um, do care about planning for the future and they are prudent and they are concerned and so I wonder if the survivalist community hasn't kind of created this rift both through in in some sense criticizing the general population and then number two with the intense secrecy associated with it uh, I mean it, th- there's nothing weird about preparedness you go to ready.gov and the federal government tells you that you should have a 72 hour kit and and the you know I have friends in emergency management here in West Palm Beach and people are pr- in the in the government are practically begging people to have their hurricane preparedness but it's almost like it's this although, in- go ahead ironically Joshua at the same time other government agencies are are attempting to uh, denigrate and and uh, target people who are well prepared, calling that calling their preparations as uh, indicators of terrorist sentiment. Uh, any they say anyone who has has a large supply of food or a large supply of ammunition or a large supply of fuel is a potential terrorist. So it's kind of a two-edged sword there. Um, to get back to your previous point, I, I don't think it's so much the the survivalists that are uh, driving away the general population so much as it is the media demonizing the survivalist mindset. I think that's the, the bigger culprit. Uh, but I, I think that with survivalism... It should have a lot of appeal to people in the investing community because, let's face it, people who are investment-minded are well-read, they have an eye on the big picture, they're inherently distrustful of government, just like survivalists, Mm -hmm. and uh, they also have an international scope of vision. So a lot of high-level investors not only have offshore bank accounts, but they also keep their passports up to date. And a lot of them even have a second passport for another country for that worst case scenario where they might have to relocate. So that same inherent mindset exists. That's kind of a a common factor between the survivalist community and the high-level investment community. And I think that in the final analysis, we have a lot more in common 
then we do differences. All right. And to, to me, that's what I see is because like, I, 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 I don't know, maybe it's stupid. I just think there's no reason why the idea of preparedness and planning for your needs is something that should be kind of hush hush where you don't talk about. Uh, and maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a, a zombie biker gang of, 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 of people that's going to come to my house, but like, I, I can't, <laughs> I mean, there you get into your novels and, and those are well worth reading because, because <laughs> it's fun, but like, I can't imagine anybody wanting to, to attack. Like, like if those of us who would strongly advocate, I would prefer that every single house on the block, uh, you know, had a bunch of guns in it. And then I would, I believe that would impact crime rate. Well, who's, who's the most likely person to have a bunch of guns in their house, people from the survival community. So you could, you could have a force on force. I don't know. I guess I, that would be the world of your novels, which are very, fun <laughs> to read and think through. But the point I'm trying to make is that when I look at it as a financial planner, as a financial planner, you're always looking for what is a good value at a certain time based upon where I am as an individual. Uh, I am not at a place in my financial life where I am going to go out and uh, and again, buy a ranch in, in Brazil, out in the hinterboonies of Brazil, you know, to protect me in case of a U.S. dollar economic collapse. I don't have, I'm still in a wealth building phase of my career. And so therefore, I'm looking for things that I can do that are practical. But the idea of, of you know, having more than a two weeks worth of food, it, there's no downside to it. And I can leverage, that's why I did a show on the alpha strategy. And then as a financial planner, when I have a client sitting here talking about retirement, and I'm looking at a portfolio of equities, and I'm looking at that I have to get guarantee a certain level of income off of this portfolio, then it's a lot easier if the client has some resilience in their lifestyle where they could decrease their expenses if they wanted to. So, so to me, there's no difference between somebody owning their house and having the goal of having a paid off house during their retirement years and the idea of them owning their power supply or their water supply or right. their food supply in some way. And so I, I want to popularize things because I don't care where the idea and the concept comes from. If it's applicable and I can pull from it and, then, and I can figure out how to apply that within the context of my personal situation, then to me, that's a, a very sound concept, which is, which is that's what my show is about, is pulling all these concepts from disparate places and applying them in individual lives. I think that's very wise, Joshua. Before we sign off, I'd like to mention a few resources that people can refer to. I don't want to toot my own horn about survival blogs so much, but I want to mention that there's dozens of blogs like mine on the internet, and most of them have no uh, subscription required. They're all wide open access. I highly recommend that people take full advantage of those blogs and that they do keyword searches uh, on the topics that are, are relevant to them, and they, they print out the most important articles in hard copy and start creating binders on different topics, one on ham radio, one on first aid, one on, on um, small arms, and, and one on traditional hand tools, for example. Start building up a reference library, because knowledge is power, and in the investing world, knowledge is profit. Right. So um, start building up your reference library. Um, a couple of times in this conversation, we've mentioned a book called The Alpha Strategy. It's now out of print. Uh, there's an ebook of it available free online. But I would recommend people get a hard copy of it because it was a bestseller back in the 1970s. And there's a huge number of copies that are sitting around in thrift stores. And because of that, you can find 
uh, a hardback copy of Alpha Strategy by John Pugsley for about a buck or two or three dollars delivered right. from, from Amazon.com or eBay. Buy a copy of that book, folks, um, and it will explain things uh, in terms of tangible investing that uh, he's very lucid in his writing and the illustrations that he gives are profound. And from a, just from a practical standpoint, as an investor, people can see the wisdom of like having a 2,000-gallon diesel tank in your, in your barnyard, mm-hmm. okay? If I can buy diesel when it's $2 a gallon and then ride out the periods of time where it spikes up to three fifty a gallon mm-hmm. by using it up gradually and then stock up again the next time there's a plummet in the price, even just seasonal differences in the prices of fuel uh, are a huge advantage because you're not buying uh, during the, the peak summer driving season for fuel, for fuel for your car, for example. Um, you're going to save a lot of money. So stock up on uh, stock up not just on tangibles and not just on foodstuffs and supplies and ammunition. Stock up on knowledge, folks. And for anyone who's going to be investing in a particular area like firearms or hairspring watches, for example, buy the best references you can find to make yourself a subject matter expert. Because that is the key differentiator between you, who will be a savvy investor and a savvy trader, and the the GDP, as I call it, the generally dumb public, who you know basically. Jim, that's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not nice, but let's, let's face it. it right, it, I understand. The bottom line is, you either have a knowledgeable investor, or you have roadkill. You've right. got. Um, Agreed. You be be the savvy investor, right? And get, and the other thing is, get out there in the marketplace. The only way that you're going to be able to barter in the event of a collapse is if you have bartering skills, and those skills only come with time and experience. So you need to be going to flea markets, and you need to be going to gun shows, and you need to be going to coin shows, and you need to be going to ham radio swap meets. That's where you learn the negotiating skills and the bartering skills that will be crucial to you. Yeah, I'm glad, glad you mentioned that. I have a one-year-old son, and I was thinking about that the other day. I'm weak on in-person negotiating. I'm, I'm kind of a pushover, and I was thinking about how am I going to – I need to figure out a way to go and get some boots-on-the-ground experience yeah. with individuals so I, I can teach him that. Show, your local gun show is, is one of the best places because not only do they sell guns there, they also sell a lot of first aid equipment. Uh, off-grid power, um, mobile photovoltaic power systems, uh, ham radio gear. You can find all that sort of thing, and even cameras at gun shows. Right. But that's where you learn the really crucial negotiating skills that will, that will teach you to be a hard bargainer and, and to have a discerning eye about things. It's, it really is crucial to practice those skills now so that you'll be ready for a post-disaster barter environment where there won't be price tags marked on things and where you everything is will be negotiable. And if there's one thing that's true about gun shows, it is that a, at a gun show, everything is negotiable. And um, if you're not using phrases like, is that the best you can do? Mm-hmm. Is that your bottom dollar? Then you're not getting 
the real market price for things. So you're getting the G pie in the sky price that people want to get for things. So uh, gain that experience now. Uh, I've had several articles in my blog. Again, it's survivalblog.com about bartering skills and negotiation. Take a look through those out of my archives. In, our, in Survival Blog, there's over 40,000 archived letters and articles. Please take full advantage of them, folks. It's absolutely free of charge. It's fully searchable by keyword. Delve into those archives. There's a real tremendous breadth and depth of knowledge there that will really help you and your families. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. I think at one point, it, it, I mean, it's, it's massive. I, I always try, when I find a blog I like, I try to read the archives. I think I got through, I think it was like five and a half years, of, four years of yours, something like that. And I said, all right, there's too much here. I can't read any more of these archives. <laughs> but I was pretty impressed with my getting through and, four and years of, worth. So, some of the very best things in Survival Blog were from the first year. Right. Because that's where I, I encapsulated a lot of the, the key concepts and where I got some of the really good um, in-depth articles from my readers that ended up getting posted. So don't miss that first year of archives from Survival Blog. Absolutely. That, we've, been, we've had the blog up since September of 2005. It, uh, propitiously, um, we started publishing Survival Blog one month before Hurricane Katrina. Wow. Wow. I just watched a documentary on that. It's a wow. I didn't realize that's a long time ago. I didn't realize it was that long ago. Wow. Interesting. Uh, well, Jim, thank you for coming on. This has been super fun. And before I hit, and I just want to thank you personally for at least the novels that you've written. You're at, you, let's see, there's Patriots, X, uh, Liberators, uh, uh, is the newest one? There was also uh, Survivors. Survivors. And then there's uh, the Expatriates, right? Yes. Yes. And so I just want to say thank you because I've enjoyed all of them. And it's nice to read. I know you get a lot of flack for uh, wearing your religion on your sleeve and writing your books in such a way that they are not defiling for a Christian. Uh, I know you get a lot of flack for that in kind of the public space, but just from one man to another, I appreciate that. It's nice to read a fun novel that's a fantasy novel that has a lot of stuff um, that's written in it without the need of being defiled for, uh, you know, for, for dramatic effect. So I know you get yeah, a lot I, of flack for that, and I thank you for doing it. Now, I've, I've got to warn readers, I, I do depict some pretty violent times, but um, I'm very careful not to take the Lord's name in vain, mm-hmm. and I'm very careful not to use any obscenity or... or um, and or or depict any you know blatant sexual activity like so many novelists for some reason feel they have to do these days. Right. So these are actually novels that you could hand to your teenage children right. and not feel bad about them reading them. Right. I, I don't want to do anything um, as a Christian that would that people would find offensive. And a, a lot of the protagonists in my novels are approaching this this near-future survival situation from a Christian outlook. But I, I think that is a, a valuable outlook to have because unless you have people who have a respect for the law, when law and order disappear, it's only going to be the, the, the God-fearing who will be law-abiding. Right. And, and, and the thing that has struck me uh, about some of those scenarios that you put your protagonists into, uh, things like theft, you, you know, we, you always assume it's generally an assumption that, uh, you know, in, the, in a time of, of 
unrest and it's you know he the victor takes the spoils and you just simply go with as you can and your protagonists are very consistent with uh it's not the fact that you know i remember in liberators uh the i can't remember the name of the character but was leaving the house and and knew that they had to abandon and they were careful to leave their rent there and it wasn't the fact that the the landlord wasn't there they still left the rent on the table and, and and left and you know whether that you know whether or not the average person um like gets that or not, I, I don't think really matters. But to me, I find that uh, I find that thought provoking as a Christian because sometimes it's so easy to get caught into what is common and acceptable in the world, and you just don't notice how certain times when you would you, you don't notice how. Uh, in certain situations, you just kind of commonly adapt the the standard of society instead of your own higher standard. That's the slippery slope. And, you know, as Christians, we're taught to be in the world, but not of the world. And especially in perilous times, we need to be the role models. We need to be leading out our own Christian witness to the community at large to set a high standard. And that's how morality and law and order will be re- restored locally, because if we become just another savage, we're going to be part of the problem, not part of the solution. Right. Absolutely. Well, Jim, thank you for coming on. I have enjoyed this conversation, and I am sure that the audience has benefited from being challenged and provoked and stimulated with some of your ideas. Keep up the good work, and I thank you for everything that you're doing. Okay, and thank you, Joshua. I, I want to thank you for your service to, to your listenership. You're uh, obviously a very intelligent and articulate individual, and you're you're coming from the right perspective. And I hope that your listeners appreciate what you're doing with your show, because you're not just saving people's money. In a show like this, you're going to be saving lives. Thank you so much, and God bless you and your listeners. What a fun interview, huh? I, I hope that you learned something. I hope that you were challenged and inspired. I want to finish with just a couple of quick thoughts. And as we mentioned there at the end of the interview, uh, I've never understood personally why why this like the, the the word survivalism in our culture seems to be this this very strange word, and it seems to like evoke all of these these. Um, emotions that people have. I read financial planning books often and say, well, I'm not talking about survivalism. And I'm like, but you are talking about survivalism. Why is this such a, a bad word? I mean, do we not do you not want to survive and thrive in every way? And do you not want to have the tools and tactics and and techniques? And the best thing that I figured out, you know, I, I don't get kind of the sensationalism of, of of some of the things in our culture, but to the best I've been able to figure out, to me, I think what one of the things that happens to people is often they feel threatened. So if you have, uh, I don't personally share uh, all of Jim's uh, or perspectives on on the certainty of, of certain situations happening in the world. I respect him and admire him, and I think that it's certainly a possibility. Anything is possible. Uh, I, none of us have a crystal ball. I don't share his certainty about them, though. However, that doesn't mean that I can't validly learn from him, and I can't say, how, how would you actually apply this in, in my life? I think what happens is a lot of times people are threatened by alternative opinions. So if I'm on the mainstream, uh, if I'm on a news show and I'm talking to you, 
about uh, why you need to invest in in stocks. That's that's a that's a very optimistic uh, perspective because the reason you invest in stocks is because you expect the value of your company and the profits of your company to rise in the future more than the cash that you have right now. And I think to me, I think a lot of it has to do with the conflicts of interest that that people have is that you have to propose a, a certain uh, a certain perspective. And what I think is interesting also, I read a lot. I read a lot in the financial planning people. Many people just simply. Um, discard the the possibility of things happening and i personally still maintain a perspective of of optimism long-term optimism what's interesting is that jim shares that as well and so i think that's really interesting to recognize but then the key is you have to do planning to be able to get you through because certainly short time short-term challenges are are very uh, are very possible and the way I think about it is a lot of people look to try to make financial assets do things that financial assets simply cannot do. The only point of money or currency or cash or a financial instrument of some sort, uh, the only point and value of it in your life is to buy something that you need and that you want. And so that may be food for your table, that may be shelter over your head, that may be entertainment with a movie or that may be a, you know, a trip, that may be a sense of freedom and financial independence, but money is limited in its utility. It's only useful to do certain things and oftentimes it is in fact a better strategy to avoid the use of money and go after something directly. And I'll give you an example that I, I believe is very related but differently. Can you buy happiness well, on Tuesday, I'm releasing a, an interview with uh, Tammy Strobel, who wrote a book called You Can Buy Happiness, and it's cheap. So uh, can you buy happiness? Well, there, were, I think in some ways you can. You can make this point multiple ways. But you can buy happiness in the sense that live a lifestyle that makes you happy. But it would, we would all say it's foolish to say I need to go and, and spend a bunch of money on a therapist unless you need one. Maybe you can just do it in advance. So happiness is usually not judged based upon the amount of currency that you have. The emotional needs that people have are sometimes solved with spending money but more often are more efficiently solved by not spending money. And so the key is to recognize the importance of financial planning and financial assets and keep it in its proper place. There are a lot of human needs that cannot be solved with the expenditure of money. There are a lot of them. So the key is to recognize those things and then to spend the money buying the things that you can buy. And so Jim takes that to one strategy. Others take it to another strategy. The, the reason – if you compare um, – Compare today's interview with the interview I'm releasing on Tuesday and read Tammy's book. Uh, we didn't talk a lot about the book on the interview, which, which I'll be releasing. But you compare the two. What you'll see is that both of them are buying what they want. They're buying lifestyle. For Tammy, she seems she measures her lifestyle and the freedom from the minimalist uh, lifestyle that that gives her. Uh, but it, that, And so she's using her money to buy that sense of freedom. Now, Jim's rebuttal to her would be, well, she's entirely dependent on the functioning of modern society. And it's true. Uh, now, on the flip side, Jim is buying freedom from worry and concern with his approach to finance. And all of us are going to have a different place in this, uh, in this, this spectrum depending on our, our, our situation, the needs of our families of what we're trying to do. So the key is to be conscious of what you're trying to solve and ask yourself, can I solve this with money or can I not solve this with money? Uh, I believe that we can take uh, the – we can take the the strategies from every single walk of life and figure out what is useful to us. And I hope that that came out in in today's interview to 
to to for you to apply it to your life. Uh, you've got to keep these things. Uh, I believe you've got to keep this the scenarios that you're planning for relevant to your actual life and your actual perspective. Um, you know, having a life insurance policy is a big deal. If you look at what is more likely, is it more likely that you might die and you might need to have a life insurance policy uh, and uh, to to care for your family? And is it easy just to buy a cheap term life insurance policy, or is it easy to do what Jim does and Jim does and live out in the hinterboonies and have a, uh, in many ways, a self reliant lifestyle? Now, the reality is that he can replace the need in many ways. That's why when I did that show on the Alpha Strategy, I think I talked to you about. My my friend who that I knew with uh, the father of – I think he and his wife had 12 children and he had built a lifestyle for his children uh, and his family that when he died from cancer, I think in his middle – early, his family was able to continue functioning. That's how I as a prudent person would have planned prior to the invention of life insurance. But it doesn't mean that there are other areas of planning that don't, that don't apply. So I hope that this has been beneficial for you to think through and think through your own uh, personal perspective. Let me know what you thought of of today's show. I know that in the modern uh, the modern world, a lot of times people don't give these these shows the type of topics. I, I so appreciate. I mean, I was thrilled that Jim accepted the invitation. I I think he did a uh, a great job. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you uh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. Give me your feedback on the show. I'd love to hear it. Tomorrow I'll be doing your Q and A. So if you've got questions for me, give them call them in on the line. Just go to the website and you'll see the SpeakPipe app. You can do it right from your phone. You can do it right from your uh, computer. That's up to you. If you enjoyed today's show, consider joining the Irregulars. That is the membership program that I've just created, a brand new membership program. That is the way that I plan to pay the bills for this show. If you appreciate and benefit from the contact content, then you can direct it. Uh, you can uh, contribute directly to the show, and that will allow you to support me and support me, the work that I'm doing uh, while avoiding some of the conflicts of interest that can come with me selling advertising, me selling. Um, you know, affiliate commissions, <clears throat> things like that. I would love, I, I want, and I, re- and I want my only duty to be to the care and care of you, the audience. And you can do that directly. If you don't have the money, it doesn't bother me a bit. I received some feedback from a listener who said, I love to support you. I don't have the money. That's what it's here for. Don't even think a bit, a moment about it. If you don't have the money, no problem. But I'll try to return to you in excess of 10, you know, 10x for every uh, amount of money that you put into the show. And I'm going to build that membership program out. It's going to take me a little while, but I'm going to build it out to where you get massive, massive value far and above even just the content of the show. If you're interested, interested in that, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash membership. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash membership, or you can find it right having on, right on the homepage. And I think that you will, um, I think that you will benefit from that. And I, my debt of gratitude to you for your support. Thank you all for listening. Have a lovely day. We'll talk with you tomorrow. listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. 
Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not, and is not intended, to be any form of financial advice. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them, because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.